0: All right, everybody, welcome back to the Equipping You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's show, we're going to talk about something that we is is part of our larger conversation that we've been having over the last two years about how do we rightly handle the Word of God, and this is something that is really important because we need to remember that behind the way in which we handle the Word of God, is our conviction about the Bible itself. Put another way, how we handle the Scripture can be directly tied or linked to our view of Scripture, but it can also show our view of the Scripture. And so rightly handling the Word of God is absolutely paramount. In 2 Timothy 2.15, in fact, we are told to rightly handle the word of truth, meaning the word of God. And so there is very few things that we can talk about that are more important than rightly handling the word of God. And we are living in a time when the issue really comes down to uh, how do we interpret the word of God over and against even air. When uh, I remember uh, I was on a bus, this was in the early 2000s, and I was talking to a guy from the Middle East, and he and I told him I'm in, a, I'm in ministry and those kind of things, and he said to me, uh, and I remember this, he said to me, good luck with that, because, you know, you have all the fighting in the Middle East over the Bible. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. But where that man got it wrong was we can really know what the Bible says. We can really... Get it right. And there are many people out there with the view that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, it just matters what you think it means. But see, that minimizes the Bible to my feelings. As we talked about recently, we don't have a feelings-based faith. We have a fact-based faith. We have a faith rooted in objective, absolute truth, and that comes from God. Titus 1.2 tells us very clearly that God never lies. And that means that God stands behind his word. The character of God, who is holy and just and perfect and good in all of his ways, he stands behind his word. And his word is inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, and authoritative. Meaning that scripture is enough for us to teach us for our life, and for our godliness. It teaches us about the character of God, about the personal work of Jesus, and the church, salvation, sin, creation, and so much more. And so the Scripture is enough for us. The Scripture is enough for us to know the truth. And so as we come to the Word of God, we come to it because we believe it is the word of God. It is God speaking to us. So as we read it, as we study it, as we meditate on it, as we memorize it, as the Spirit takes the truth and applies it to our hearts that we've read and studied and meditated on and that we've heard preached, uh, he is taking that truth and planting the word of Christ, as Paul says, and Romans 10:17 further and further into our hearts and into our minds. And we need to remember this as we come to this topic because uh, we are living in a day when there is a lot of different interpretations. And so we have to come with the right view of the Bible itself, otherwise we're not going to get the right meaning. So so important The word interpret can be used to mean to understand, to translate, or even to explain. In fact, these three functions of the interpretive process are also appropriate for whether you're reading the Bible, studying the Bible, or teaching the Bible, or if you're a qualified male pastor, preaching the Word. First, we are aiming to understand what the biblical text is saying, then we translate that information into the intended theological message and finally we explain that message whether it's in article form if you're going to write an article or in a book or if you're doing a podcast or if you're a qualified male pastor you're preaching to the congregation or if you're a ladies bible study teacher and you're teaching the ladies or if you're a home school teacher and you're teaching your children or if you're you know, uh, a Christian Bible teacher at a Christian school, you get the idea, okay? This is applicable for all of our lives. Now, the interpreter needs to have a working knowledge of the basic principles of interpretation. These hermeneutical principles are like tricks of the trade for a biblical interpreter. They guide us in our examination of the text so that our work is kept within the bounds of what we want to call legitimate hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. And so the idea behind these three principles, I mean, is that properly handled, the text will disclose its meaning to the interpreter, meaning we can know what it says because we take the text seriously. We're studying it. So interpreting the Bible, or hermeneutics, is the science and art of understanding, translating, and explaining the meaning of the text. And so to guide this process, we can follow these basic principles that help discern the intended meaning of the, the, the biblical text writer rather than imposing our own text, our own ideas, I mean, on the text. And so here's uh, very simply seven principles that can help you first the first one is identify the kind of literature your text your the biblical text is for insight into its meaning bible scholars call this the genre of the text that means the general form that the text says that is whether the text is narrative prophecy poetry history gospel or epistle so for example narrative genesis is a narrative Uh, The gospel, that would be the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Epistle, that would be, for example, uh, Romans or Ephesians. Poetry would be, uh, a good one would be Psalms. Um, Prophecy, uh, something like Isaiah or Daniel or Revelation. Now, the various kinds of literature present their meanings in differing styles with different structures. Narrative texts do not operate the same way epistles do in getting the message across to the reader. In fact, the variety in literary forms is a very complicated study. Biblical scholars go beyond the the basic forms I even just mentioned here to subforms with subtle differences that the ordinary reader would not necessarily notice unless they were trained in those things. And this is where even Bible scholars, they disagree with one another about the different subforms or the subtleties of the text and yet in spite of all these technical distinctions the the preacher or the studier of scripture can still recognize the text form and how it affects its meaning meaning that we can know what it says with the help of the holy spirit with the help of good, solid commentaries and resources. We can know what we call authorial intent, what the author meant, and how he intended to convey that meaning uh, to the intended audience. And authorial intent is just simply, what is the author's clue? What is the author stating is his purpose, like Luke's gospel. The whole point of Luke's gospel is given in a key verse um, in Luke 19.10 that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So Luke's whole goal is to show uh, Jesus as the one who seeks and the one who saves the lost. Um, and so every single, whether it's a gospel or letter or narrative, it has a goal, it has a purpose in mind. Um, and understanding what that purpose is will help you to navigate that particular book and help you understand the the flow of it and what the author wants uh, us to understand uh, from reading and studying that particular biblical book. Now second, consider the context of the pa- of the passage for a better understanding of its meaning. This is often considered the first and the most important uh, principle for accurate uh, biblical interpretation. Biblical scholars use the term context to discuss, various aspects of the original writing of the text, historical, social, political, religious, and even literary. It is the literary concern here that I specifically have in mind than talking about here as the context of the passage. The writer follows a logical line of thought in what he writes, what he said in the previous verses or chapters, and what he said in the ones that follow will help make the text in question clear. Taking the text out of that context risks misinterpreting it. Often clues in the surrounding verses will open aspects of the meaning in the biblical text that you might have missed. Now third, read the text for its plain and its obvious meaning. A common myth, or and a persistent myth at that, about the Bible is that its real meaning is hidden behind its surface message. And so even though the Bible uses symbolic or figurative language, for example, in Revelation, most of it is clear to the reader. Even when you do not know about the people, the places, the events in question, you can grasp the point of the text. And the use of figurative language in Scripture only enhances the plain meaning of the text. Uh, Matthew 7.3 says, Why do you complain about the splinter in your brother's eye when you have a plank in your own eye, Jesus said? And even though this is figurative language, we have no trouble understanding what he meant. His use of the metaphors makes it even clearer. Fourth, try to discern the writer's intentions when he wrote the text. And this principle of intentionality is critical, especially for the expository preacher, those who are teaching verse by verse and line by line. You study the text not to find a sermon in it, but to discover the author's or the writer's intended message. That's authorial intent, as we talked about just a minute ago. Unless you can learn the intended meaning of the biblical text writer, you're not going to be able to rightly handle the Word of God. You're not going to rightly be able to then write about that text if you write or, or write an article or a book or if you're preaching a sermon or you're teaching a lesson you're not going to be able to handle the text rightly in your teaching. Remember, the text cannot mean what it never meant. And so discovering the author's original meaning is your first task as you aim to rightly handle the Word of God. The intended meaning of the text text writer will also be the intended meaning of the Holy Spirit who inspired that biblical writer to write that book. And as you read their words, you are dealing with a revelation from God. It's been said, and I agree, that if you want to hear God speak, open your Bible. If you want to hear him speak out loud, read the Bible out loud. We need to remember that all scripture is God-breathed, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And so the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words in the first place wants this message to be preached again throughout your message, your your article, your social media update, etc., and so forth. And if you want to teach in line with what the Bible says and you want to be used by the Spirit to help people grow in their handling of God's Word, then you must do it this way. Fifth, Look carefully at the language of the biblical text for what it reveals about its meaning. Words carry thoughts. We know that words have meaning. That's why we have, you know, dictionaries. Words have meaning and they have purpose. The words of the text are all we have of the writer's thoughts. If they hadn't written it down, we wouldn't know what they were thinking. And so we can look closely at the words, examining every single one carefully and for the part that it plays in the message that the writer is trying to convey. And now also look at how the words and the phrases connect with one another, and how the sentences are constructed. If you can study the, the biblical text in the original language, you can gain even greater insight into the meaning. Now, you don't have to know the original languages. Uh, you can go to a website like Blue Letter Bible, for example, and you can look up the, the meaning of the word and uh, and, and words, and you can get help from uh, Strong's Bible Concordance. These things are helpful. There's also vines, uh, expository word study, and these things help. Now, many, many st- uh, studious students of Scripture, they do study Greek and Hebrew uh, to help them understand the original language, what it originally meant. But even if you cannot read your, the biblical text in those languages... As I mentioned, you can still use lexicons, you can use word study books uh, to guide you. And though, uh, you know, if you preach, your congregation probably isn't interested in Hebrew or Greek. Your study of scripture, whether you're a pastor or a writer or on and on, will open insights that make the message clearer to your audience as you do engage in that kind of study. And yet, you can do this without getting into great detail about tenses and forms and things like that. What I do, if I'm going to cite a specific word, what I'll do is I'll say, This word means something, means this, and this is why it means this. Um, And I'm always looking for this kind of thing, especially if. You know, it's a word that really stands out, and and there's always going to be a, a word that stands out. Like in Psalm one, for example, the word meditate stands out, and it means to mutter, to to uh, talk to oneself under one's breath, and to talk to oneself in a in a biblical way. Um, there, in in Psalm two, the same Hebrew word for uh, that was used in Psalm one to is used. In uh, Psalm one, it's the word plot in the ESV. And it means the same thing, except it has a different meaning because of the context. In, verse, in, in Psalm 1, the word meditate is applied to the godly, to the one who is meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. That is the word of God day and night. So they're talking to themselves over and over again about scriptures. Now in Psalm two, what we see in the context is that we're not talking about the godly; we're talking about the wicked now. And the wicked, they they plot in in vain. Psalm one two in the ESV says, and the word plot there it means also means meditate, but it, in this context it means something different. That in the Psalm one two, the psalmist is saying that the author meditates. On the scripture day and night. In Psalm two one, The author is saying. That they're plotting in vain. They're literally murmuring. About rebellion. So instead of. In Psalm 1 what we saw. Is they're meditating on the, the law of the Lord. The 66 books of scripture. In Psalm 2. What they're doing. Is they're plotting. They're murmuring about rebellion. Against God. Against his word. These kind of things are really important to understand. Um, that you not only need to understand the meaning of the word, but you need to understand the context in which it's given. And when you don't understand the context and use a word, you're always going to get the wrong. You're going to get the wrong meaning, and that's a real danger. But some people they would discourage you from doing this kind of study because. You're going to get the wrong meaning. And so, but I think that part of digging into scripture is learning how to do this kind of thing rightly. Because it, especially when you see key words and key ideas, you want to know what that word means. And you want to understand, you got to, but you have to understand the context because the context is going to give you a clue about what the meaning is, like I was just explaining about the difference between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And in Psalm 1, what we see is that the godly, they meditate on the law of the Lord. That is the 66 books. They take themselves in the hand and they talk to themselves about Scripture. Or put another way, they preach to themselves the truth of Scripture. In Psalm 2, what we see is they plot in vain, meaning they meditate or they preach themselves themselves about rebellion against the Lord and against his Messiah, that is against Jesus Christ. And so I hope that that is helpful to you and gives you an example of what I mean. There's a lot more that could be said about that specific aspect of things, but hopefully that will help you to uh, begin to rightly handle the, the word as it comes to Understanding keywords and ideas. Sixth point here is notice the various theological themes in the biblical text. Though the text has one intended meaning, every biblical text can have a number of significant theological themes. It can also have a number of different applications. So when you work on and write down your observation, you list these themes and what the text says about them. This, of course, requires you to read the text over and over again. And then that'll help you to identify these themes and understand how they relate to one another in your text. That's a helpful thing in understanding and grasping the meaning. The same theological themes are going to show up in a different combination of various texts throughout the Bible. And so whether you're Studying the Bible, reading the Bible, preaching the Bible. If you're a male qualified pastor, uh, you're going to try to discover the best wording for the writer's subject and the modifier that limits and focuses it. And you'll also look through the text for the predicates, the various things the writer is saying about his subject. The theological themes in the text will give you what you need for these tasks. Now, this is where having good systematic theology uh, is really helpful. Some of my favorites are, you know, the Reformed Systematic uh, Theology series. It has three volumes by Paul Smalley and Joel Beakey out from Crossway. I also really appreciate John Frame's uh, Systematic Theology. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology is also helpful, although, you know, you may not agree with everything, but you're never going to agree with everything in a Systematic Theology anyway. But it's helpful. It gives you some idea these these three systematic theologies give you some idea of what you know the text will mean. Also, you know Calvin's Institutes is is very helpful as well. So these kind of things can help you to discover the theological themes in a text. Uh, a lot of the times, you can look at the Scripture Index and you can look and see. Oh, this is what that this is what that uh, particular Uh, theology is and you can trace it throughout the whole bible that's what systematic theology is doing it's taking a whole topic and it's expounding on it uh, from a whole bible perspective and so doing that kind of work is is really important i usually do that um towards the end of my study after i've already worked through the text i'm starting to get some idea of okay this is you know this is being developed and more and then, and then as you're preparing the lesson, there's going to be choices to make. <laughs> you're going to have to make some choices about, hey, how far, how far am I going to go? You know, how, how deep am I going to go? I think in terms of that, uh, in terms of teaching and preaching, my general rule is don't go further than the average Christian in the pew. Meaning that if you think that the average Christian in the pew isn't going to understand what you mean... And you can't explain the, the words and the ideas simply. It might be best just to leave that out. Um, and, and also, you know, this is also helpful, I think. Try to try to find other texts that point to Christ as you're doing this. Because all, and what we see, and we'll talk about this, and this is the, really the next point that we're going to go into, but, you know, Scripture is clear. And we we use the word purposcuti, meaning that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so, you know, Scripture has a unified message and goal, and that centers on Jesus Christ. And so, we'll just go here to point seven now, and that is always take a God-centered perspective for interpreting your text or point people to Christ. What this means is, looking at the text in terms of what it reveals about God and his dealings with creation, man, Um, this is theological interpretation. It arises from the conviction that the Bible really is God's means of making himself known to us special revelation. What it says about him will be central to every text. Now, the Bible was not given by God to tell us only about ancient religious people and how we should all try to be like them. It was given to tell us about the faithful God who they either served or denied. Their response is not the central message, God's will and his involvement with his creation are. even even texts that give instructions as to how we should behave reveal something about God. Luke 2427 says in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now the word interpreted in Luke 2427, It means either to unfold the meaning of what is said, explain, expound, or even to translate into one's native tongue. Notice what I did. I gave another example of how to do that kind of word study and explain it to somebody. This is what it means. It doesn't mean that you have to give the actual Greek word to to the audience when you're preaching. It's just showing them, hey, this is what this means in its context. Dr. Howard Marshall is correct when he says the root idea of explain is a word from which we derive the word hermeneutics, which is the science of biblical interpretation. He says. Now, here's an example of the context. For example, Luke finds itself uh, finds its unity. I mean, in the person of Jesus and his mission to seek and to save the lost. From the first announcement of his coming to his ascension to heaven, Jesus is at the center of everything. The songs are for his praise. The miracles are by his power. The teaching is from his wisdom. The conflict is over his claims. The cross is that which only he could bear. Luke gives his account further literary unity by intertwining the stories of Jesus and John the Baptist by beginning and ending his story at the temple, by presenting the life of Jesus as a journey towards Jerusalem, and by following the progress of the disciples as they learn to count the cost of discipleship. The unity of the Gospel of Luke is expressed in Jesus' pronouncement to Zacchaeus in Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to, came to seek and to save the lost. In fact, the immediate context of Luke 24.13-35 through 35, it fits within the broader context, we can say, of Luke 24, which is about the resurrection of Jesus. Luke's gospel began in the temple in Luke 1, 5-23. And after Jesus rose from the dead, it concludes in the temple as well in Luke 24, 52-53. Luke has Jesus appearing to his disciples and then gives the ascension of Jesus. And now with the phrase, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus is highlighting the entire Old Testament, summarized as all Scripture. Jesus explained to the men on the road to Emmaus not only the explicit prophecies about the Messiah, but also the historical patterns of God's activity throughout the Old Testament, and how they find their fulfillment in Him. And so, in the inscrutable wisdom of divine providence, the substance of Christ's exposition of the Old Testament messianic prophecies was not recorded but the gift of what he expounded would have undoubtedly included an explanation of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was full of types and symbols that spoke of Jesus' suffering and death. And he also would have pointed them to the major prophetic passages which spoke of the crucifixion, such as in Psalms 16, 9-11, and Psalms 16, Isaiah 52, 14-15, 12, and Zechariah 12, 10. He would have pointed out the true meaning of Genesis 3.15, Numbers twenty through 9 Psalms 16.10, Jeremiah 23.5-6, Daniel 9.26, and a host of other key messianic prophecies, particularly those that spoke of his death and resurrection. And so the Lord interpreted all the scripture as pointing to himself, showing how the Old Testament, in various ways, pointed to himself. J.C. Ryle is correct, the key to understanding the Bible is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who was bruised on the cross before crushing Satan's head. He is the lamb who offered his blood for our sins and was lifted up for our salvation. He is the covenant maker who cursed was cursed for our covenant breaking and who sprinkled his redeeming blood on the altar of the cross. And if we turn to Isaiah, the scripture says that the Savior will be wounded for our iniquities and pierced for our transgressions. And Isaiah 53, 5. If you turn to Jeremiah, the scripture there says that he will be mocked and abused in Jeremiah 20, 7 through 10 If you turn to Zechariah, the scriptures say that he will make atonement for the whole land in a single day in Zechariah 3, 9. These prophecies find their fulfillment in the suffering and death of Jesus, who was wounded, pierced, and abused, and offering himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And all of this is only the beginning. Jesus continued his Bible exposition using all the principles of his Christ centered, gospel driven interpretation to explain all that was said in all the scripture concerning himself, Luke 24, 27. And so we can say Jesus is not here or there in this prediction or this prophecy. He is everywhere in the Old Testament. He is the ark of the covenant and the blood on the mercy seat. He is the light on the golden lampstand, and the bread of life. He is the prophet who preaches like Moses, the priest who prays like Aaron, and the king of David's heart. And so the basis for biblical interpretation, it begins with Jesus. And what that means is Jesus' preaching was biblical. It was based on the law and the prophets. Jesus' preaching, we can say, was thorough. He wanted his friends to know everything the prophets had spoken. His preaching was Christ-centered. He was preaching about himself. His preaching was gospel-centered. It included both the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus proclaimed the agonies of the cross and the glories of the empty tomb. His preaching was persuasive. He argued the absolute necessity of doing his saving work the way he did. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to be glorified. And so if we follow the model of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, to his friends, our study of scripture, our teaching of his word, will honor God. It will see the lost saved, the, strengths, the saints strengthened, and the kingdom advanced. May God raise up teachers and students of the Word who are unafraid and unashamed to preach His Word and to interpret Scripture, all of Scripture in light of Jesus and for His glory. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Until next Monday and Wednesday, May the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, You can find us on Twitter, at Servants of Grace, on Instagram, at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.